All right. So today we have a very interesting uh, dojo talks. I think it's going to be amazing. Um, it really derived from a question from Buddy Thompson on the Twitter and said, hey, can you guys describe your best tournament experiences? And that was interesting to me. And then I, I was thinking about it a little bit. I was like, I would really like to talk about best chess experiences. Uh, and those could be tournament experiences. So what we're going to do today is we're just going to each, we each have five experiences. We don't know what each other's experiences are, right? We're going to do five experiences. Uh, I'll begin and then we'll just kind of go through it. We'll take our time with it, but we're not going to spend forever. We might react <laughs> to it a little bit. I, these are not, at least mine are not chronologically arranged or anything. It might end up feeling that way or something. But in any case, that is what we're going to do. Are you guys ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, very interesting. Now, one of the things I want to say before I begin about this that I think is going to be fascinating is we are different generations. And when I was putting mine together, I was like, oh, yeah, this uh, experiences here that I have you couldn't, you can't have them anymore in the same way that I have them. And so I think there'll be an interesting uh, difference between us three in terms of what our formative or memorable chess experiences are. Okay, so my, my first one, I'll just put out there. Uh, I was introduced to chess in a, at a camp. It was kind of random. A friend was like, hey, do you want to go to this chess camp? But it was out in the wilderness and whatever. And I didn't, I, didn't know. I was like, sure, let's go. Um, and at that camp, was this uh, I am he never made GM his name was Jack Peters from LA and I think they paid him like a pittance <laughs> they paid him like a pittance to be out there this is back in the day with just professionals dude they were just barely making it and also uh at that camp as a teacher was Proust's later teacher Haynes that guy was also there and what I remember about this camp and this is uh, about a lot of my chess memories is the feeling, sensation that I was experiencing something deeper, something with intellect and like touching something uh, of intellectual beauty in a way that I hadn't ever even come close to feeling before and that I wanted more of it. And it's a very formative moment, even not just for chess, but like for other things in my life where I was like, right, this is the path. This is what I'm looking for. Um, right. And I'll say more about other chess experiences, but that camp, which was only a couple days long, it wasn't like some week long thing. It was more like maybe three days, uh, was one of them. And I just want to add a, another interesting detail about that camp was there was a teacher named Will Wharton from Arizona and he brought in his like students and they all wore like the same shirts and stuff. And they showed up at that camp and I was like, oh, these kids are another level. And so a lot of my chess experiences are like that. I was like witnessing somebody that was of a different level. So, All right. So how, old, how old were you at the camp, Jesse? Oh, thank you for saying that. I was going into seventh grade. So oh, and 11. so, wow. So Jack Peters was a coach at that camp. Yeah. That's so funny. Cause I, I um, took some like group classes <laughs> from as well. I would attend mm -hmm. when I was a kid. Right. Um, right, right. In, in SoCal. Uh, so that's funny that he's kind of taught us both <laughs> at that age. Well, also this guy Haynes was, well, I'm sure Bruce will talk about him at some point uh, in the memorable chess experiences. Okay, Kostya, I, we didn't do an order, but why don't you go next? Uh, okay, so 
yeah, we mentioned that, or we, we discussed that these experiences can just be anything <laughs> related to chess. Um, so I arranged mine, I believe, chronologically in terms of my uh, most memorable experiences. And I'm sure I've forgotten some stuff, but um, the way I kind of arranged this is that this is the stuff that I remembered in the last 20 minutes. So clearly it was the most memorable because yeah. <laughs> that that's how it works yeah. if you forgot it it wasn't the most memorable <laughs> i'm really sorry but you know maybe maybe later i'll remember some more stuff okay so the first one i'll start with the first time i felt um just really really in love with the game of chess um was around the time i started studying on my own and really actually taking the game uh seriously and i remember the story uh, very clearly what had happened was that uh, Fisher had passed away. So I think this was around 2008. And I wasn't like really into chess at the time. Um, and I remember reading like all these eulogies and like obituaries uh, about Fisher when that ha happened. And uh, and then that got me very, very interested in, into the game. Uh, so I started reading all about Fisher. I found his story just like absolutely fascinating. I started reading about like other players and and then that's what got me interested and that's what actually got me like working on the game and and, and here we are. Um, so I guess included in this is like me studying uh, Fisher's mem 60 memorable games, which was just a blast. I just look forward to that like every single day I just go through one or two games and it was just the most um, the most interesting for me. And then later, I would have a similar experience going through Shirov's book, Fire on Board, where every game was just like super interesting. And I just like, I don't know, just incredibly enjoyed the experience of just going through a chess game and, and, and reading the notes. And I didn't I wasn't worried about like, oh, am I improving from this or what exactly am I trying to? I just like just love the um, the whole thing. Um, and then. So basically, I guess I'm just saying like all the times that I've managed to kind of study on my own and really enjoy it, those times have always been very special for me. There were a couple of times where I, you know, sat down with a Dvoretsky book for, for like several weeks and really just like suffered through it. Uh, but just enjoying every single second of the process, right? Just feeling like, wow, I'm getting to learn from, you know, the be one of the best trainers in the world, right? And so like this is his his teaching that I'm getting to uh, um, to take in. So, so that's my first one, just a, a small collection of my solo chess study experiences that, um, you know, really got me, let's say, closer to the game. Hmm. So um, this is hard. This is hard for me to, to, to cut the list down <laughs> to, you know, about four or five uh, top experiences. Um, I guess they don't need to be in any particular order so i don't have to worry about which one was like number one and which one was number two um i came up with like 20 things already now i know i told you guys i had a list of 10 like 10 minutes ago when we convened but now it's up to 20 and like each time i think of something i think of another something right like if i think of meeting my teacher and starting to work with him then i think of you know reading a book that he gave me right and then i think of you know springing an opening surprise on somebody that i that i caught that i read in one of those books in those days you know in, in my days costa reminded me what a baby he was with like <laughs> with 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 the timing of fisher's death and his career but um <laughs> 
but you know, in, in my day, like you would find like an opening idea in a book and then like surprise somebody <laughs> with that. <laughs> so, um, so it's, it's really tough. Like each, each, each experience leads to another one. Um, but, uh, all right. I'm just going to hit you guys with, uh, with something that captures a few different, uh, a few different elements. So, um, because of the way, well, I guess I should start with, with Robert then and get to this one second. Okay. So, um, having Robert Haynes as a teacher, my teacher, that was definitely, um, I can't, I, I don't know if I can rank them as number one or number two or whatever, but that was fundamental. I mean, that sort of defines everything that I became as a chess player and a chess teacher, you know, and, um, I guess that experience of being a student to somebody who was such a teacher was really fundamental because I not only eventually became a chess master like him, but I also eventually became a chess teacher like him. Right. So like my, my apprenticeship as, as you will with, uh, with, uh, Robert, you know, I learned, I learned so much from it, but also just like the feeling of being in that kind of relationship where somebody is mentoring you completely, totally, you know? And, um, if you skip way down the line, like a really great experience I had one day was somebody in chess dojo chat was saying, was saying something like Bruce is a teacher. And when I say teacher, I don't mean like a chess teacher. I mean, he's like somebody who's like teaching you, you know, life, like, like how, how to be in the world, you know? And I mean, I, I don't want to make any claims about what I am myself like that, but that's what I felt like Robert was, you know? And, um, you know, he, he gave me a lot of chess books to read, but he also gave me Herodotus and the Peloponnesian war and stuff like that. You know, he had me reading like Napoleon and military strategy and, all, all, all these kind of like things to broaden my understanding. He wasn't just like, Oh, I better help this guy with the London system. Right. Like it was like, I need to turn this person into, you know, an older, better version of this person. Right. Just growing in every dimension and uh, you know, nurturing and, and, and looking out for me and like, you know, we, we never even, we never even paid him. I don't know if you know that Jesse, but like he, he never, I don't think he ever let my parents pay him for lessons. And he, he like, you know, gave me a computer when he wanted me to practice something on a computer. And I didn't have a computer yet at that age. Right. He gave me a computer. He gave me shogi, right. To, you know, Japanese chess. So I would like work on the initiative. You know, he showed me how to use bulletin boards to play correspondence chess mm. um, on these janky old bulletin boards. Um, he showed me his favorite computer games and taught me how to play civilization. Um, you know, so it's just like, it's just like in every dimension, he was just, watching out he was just you know thinking of me watching out for me caring for me bringing me up you know in in every single all all directions of of development so being on the on the student side of that kind of a relationship and i don't think you often get to have a teacher who sticks with you for years and teaches you more than a subject i think that's probably a somewhat rare 
experience. Most teachers, you get them for six months or a year and they teach you about Shakespeare, right? And a great teacher may teach you some other things that go beyond Shakespeare as well, right? But you don't normally have somebody who's just sort of like leading you through life for years other than your parents. Um, so that that was uh, my experience. I'll stop there. Okay, cool. All right, round two. Um, so fast forward a couple of years. I did not have a teacher. So it's good just jumping off from there. I was living in a place where there was a couple of master players. It was in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You know, no internet, nothing like that. And so my chest was very inward, like a very introverted thing, uh, which totally can exist today, you know, totally different situation. Uh, and I would get books in the library. One of those books was Korshnoi's 400 Best Games. In hindsight, a really arrogant title. <laughs> My 400 Best Games. You want another? You want a thousand, buddy? What do you want? In any case, it was Korshnoi, you know, beating all these people down. But, you know, quality games, not that many notes either. <laughs> and I would be studying these games and, um, you know, the game speaks for to... itself, right? He's just like, look how hard I beat down everything. <laughs> what more needs to be said? But, you know, these old Soviet games from the sixties and then, you know, we play in the seventies, what, you know, in any case. So, um, there was, I was really by myself all the time. Uh, and I would do a thing, you know, where I would uh, basically try to sleep as much in school. And then at night, I would try to study as long as I could at night. And I remember uh, it was one night and I had some weed and we were, I was smoking some weed and I was studying these games, man. I was studying these Korshnoi games. And it wasn't like I was smoking weed all the time or something at that point. But I remember this very vividly. And I remember having the sensation of like understanding something about the game and then understanding how beautiful it was. And I remember bawling. I remember crying over this game. I have no idea which game it was. And what's interesting is like, as a joke, you could say, Oh, cry, come on. You're, you know, obviously you were high and you were bawling. <laughs> but what was, what's interesting to me actually about it is there's so many points in my later life where I've experienced something beautiful, whether it's in chess or something else, and I did not allow myself to cry. It was like a check. There's like, well, you know, we're not going to cry about it. Uh, and that moment, it was more like the weed allowed me to experience the full human emotion of the beauty of the moment. And then just like, oh, right, this is effing amazing. And then, you know, kind of letting it go. So it was a very interesting spiritual moments that even later, if I moments more sober where I didn't cry, I was like, oh, right. There's this magical moment of connection of understanding something that happens in general in intellectual life, but really in chess, it's something that, uh, I mean, I, it's like, I found it explicitly that night. And then it's something I guess I've held on to. Um, okay. So Kostya, you ever, uh, cry at beauty? Um, let's see. I've definitely cried about a chess game before, but not because it was beautiful, but more <laughs> because I had lost. <laughs> okay. I think that's more standard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I cried at like movies and stuff. It's had tears. Um, Have you seen American beauty? I think so. 
at the beginning, there's like a plastic bag moving around. And the guy's oh, like, God, the so plastic beautiful. bag. Beautiful. The plastic. Oh, and like, it's like about to do a Jesse cry about the plastic bag. <laughs> no, I don't remember that. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, okay. My number two um, is, let's say, the experience of working on my chess with. Um, an international master, uh, Zhanyubek Amanov, and we would uh, later be co-authors on our Sicilian book. Uh, so there was a specific period of time when I was, I think, maybe around uh, 17, 18 years old in, in this range. And um, he had recently just moved to, to the States, to Los Angeles, and uh, we had both been playing these like open tournaments and round robin events. Uh, I was trying to go for some IM norms. I think I was like 2250, 2300 FIDE at the time. And uh, we started working t together as as training partners. And uh, I mean, number one, it was great for, for my chess, but mainly it was just a lot of fun. It was just very, very enjoyable to have someone um, you could spar with, you know, we'd solve positions together, go through games together. Um, he, uh, of course, comes from Kazakhstan, so he uh, could read Russian much better than I could. So, so we could actually go through some Russian books together and he would kind of uh, translate, which was great. Um, and then perhaps the best uh, the best work we did together, we actually did with our friend um, Alex King, who I think was like uh, national master back then. And we went through Perfect Your Chess together, uh, which, as you guys know, is, is a great book. Um, and that was a ton of fun, just going through those problems together. We solved a lot of them at, like, different, uh, like, Denny's <laughs> throughout Los Angeles. Uh, we would, like, hang out at, like, the, the USC uh, food court sometimes, just set up a board and, and solve puzzles there. It would get very competitive. You know, we'd, we'd always want to be, like, the first to, to solve a problem. Uh, and I felt like great. It was just great for my chest to just do all that with with other people, um, and uh, and yeah, very enjoyable uh, at the same time. Um, and then when we collaborated on the book, that was also written at lots and lots of different uh, coffee shops throughout Los Angeles, which was a lot of fun. Just like going to different places, opening up a laptop, doing research, arguing about how to phrase something looking at a chess position, looking at the, you know, computer eval, arguing about the eval. <laughs> so, I don't know, it was just, yeah, uh, very, very fun the whole time. Cool. That's nice to hear. I'm glad that you got to have that experience. <laughs> Fantastic to be a peer. I think that, um, that that inspires me. I'll start my first three off as minus equal plus, like, uh, like Jesse does it. So my first one was, you know, the experience of being a student. So experience of being a peer, you know, um, let's, let's just say like, I've done most of my chess improvement while working with a peer. And, um, but also the greatest thing about it is that I've become friends with so many of my peers and that I had so much fun doing it. Right. So I'm sure you got better writing your Sicilian book, but you had like such a good time that that was already worth it on its own in a way. So I guess, um, you know, I, I can immediately think of, you know, 10 peers, you know, masters who I've played against over the course of my life, who've become really good friends, um, including you two, of course. And, um, 
I guess to just give one detail to it, I'll bring up the chess house. So, um, so we lived in, um, Jesse and I lived together in this house called the chess house. Um, Friedel had moved out to California to, um, you know, share some Sanford money with me and, and do some training together, like some training together to train together, like every day, nonstop, basically. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then we had Arun and we had Vinay and we had Jesse, um, and later Sam Shanklin. So we're all kind of like living together and, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, your whole house is full of like chess and friends. What, what could be better? What more do you want in life? That's always sounded insane. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone who heard about it was wished that they lived in a chess house. Like I would guess that right now there's not a single person listening to this podcast or (laughs) listening to this in Twitch right now. Who's thinking like, nah, I wouldn't want to live in a chess house. I'm happy with my, you know, living at home with my partner and kids. That's good too. (laughs) No way. <laughs> no way. I even know um Kosti what the kids call that. They call that copium. Hmm. That's yeah. It's good. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> um, but anyway, now that I shown you that I'm a young person, um <laughs> hello, fellow young people. Um, but uh I yeah. I think, uh, you know, you, you get up in the morning, you stumble out of bed and somebody's got an end game study on the breakfast table, right? Mm. Or you're analyzing some game and you come face to face with some beautiful chess move that makes you cry. You knock on the door next to you and show them the position. Anyway, I, I know we all want to live in a chess house and I was lucky to do so. That's right. Yeah. I'll just add to the chess house story. Uh, it's called the GM house. Thank you very much. And uh, also Irina crush was also there as well as we had other transient people coming through yeah. at various points. It was That's pretty right. amazing. Um, okay. Round three. Um, I, so again, I had no contact with strong players or no internet. And um, one of the first really cool things I got to do was I was invited to play in the U S under 16 championship. It used to be like, if you won the under 16 or the under 21, they would send you to the world championship. So it was like essentially a qualifier. And this was played at the Manhattan chess club in New York. And really, you know, so just historical note that the, the Marshall chess club still exists the Manhattan Chess Club used to be the comparable club to the Marshall. That's where, you know, Bobby played mostly was at the Manhattan. And now it's closed down. You can forget about it. You cannot find it. <laughs> it does not exist anymore. And so there was this brief moment where I got to go there. And it was like, let me just say, like, you play chess in the States, even now, there's often not a feeling as if something uh, special or beautiful is going on. It's often, you know, in some random hotel that has no um, style or grace or anything like that. And then this Manhattan Chess Club, it's not like it was some beautiful thing. I remember this rickety old uh, elevator that came up in one of those tall New York buildings. But you could just feel like the old wooden tables were worn, like, yeah, there's ambiance of like, ah, oh, dude, Fisher, <laughs> Fisher and all these other guys played here, man. And 
also at that time, I got to meet some very strong uh, kids. At my generation, it was basically all Russian Jews or, or you know, Jews who had come either first or second generation that were living on the East Coast. That was all the kids that I was coming up with. So I was meeting all these kids that had access to uh, like Russian language literature. They had access to coaches in New York City. And, you know, so I was just this complete outsider, you know, coming into this world like a tasting, just getting a taste, <laughs> getting a taste of this New York City chess culture. Uh, yeah. And so, so there it is. Like, as, as if you feel like you're coming in contact with some kind of greatness, both through them and then the history of New York City and the ghost of Bobby Fischer. I'll, I will just interject that that's on my list too. Mm-hmm. My first pilgrimage to New York. I'll say no more. We'll let you tell that story, but uh, it, cool. it was on my list as well. Okay. Oh, nice. I visited the same chess clubs, Manhattan, Marshall for the first times, you know, some famous parks where, you know, searching mm-hmm. for Bobby Fisher happened and stuff like that. Yeah. Manhattan chess club. I feel like maybe I like read it in some, in some book. But yeah, actually, I never made the connection that it was a separate place to the Marshall. <laughs> I thought they were just referring to the same. <laughs> so there's two different clubs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I never knew that, I think. Yeah, Manhattan is where like Fisher had played, as Jesse said. And there were like oil paintings up on the walls, right? Of like some old school masters. And But didn't yeah, you also play at the Marshall? Yeah, I've also played at the Marshall. Also, No, I mean, Fisher. Oh. Yeah, no, those are the two main clubs. Those he played about. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Uh number three for me is uh would be my my first uh chess Euro trip. So I've been to Europe a couple times to play chess, but the first time I went, it was definitely very special. Uh, because it wasn't my first time in Europe, but it was my first time traveling to Europe for chess, which was very cool. And I ended up doing four tournaments over over two months um, and, and some really, really great events, too. And I went with my roommate at the time. So this kind of uh, feeds off of the chess house because I was lucky enough to live with a chess player for a short period of time. And that was a, that was very cool. It was uh, National Master Tom Riccardi. And um we were basically both like very interested in working on our chess. We're both like full-time chess teachers. So it was just like a great, uh, a great fit. So we lived together for several months, worked together a bunch, and then we planned this, this big, uh, Euro trip. So it started with the Gibraltar open and then, uh, and then Tom met up with me and then we played, uh, the, the con, uh, chess festival in France, which was a nice open, then we played uh, Capella Grande, which I imagine you guys have played. Um, that was that was very strong and, and super super fun. Uh, I got to meet like a bunch of a bunch of players there. Uh, coincidentally, I and Mark Esserman played all the same tournaments. We didn't we didn't even coordinate with him. He just happened to <laughs> set up the same. So we saw him at all the events and got to hang out with him a bunch as well, which was super fun. Um, but but he was at all these tournaments too. Uh, then we spent a week in in Belgium, just kind of hanging out, which was a ton of fun, um, and got to play chess in like Belgian uh, bars and stuff, which was cool. And then we finished with the Reykjavik Open, which was my first time playing that event as well. 
Um, so, I mean, the big purpose of the trip was to try to get my final IM norm, which I did not manage to do. I was like 2380 and I had like uh, uh, two norms at the time. So I was just trying to get the, the third norm, but I, I didn't manage. Although not, not that the events were terrible, it just uh, wasn't quite good enough. Um, but yeah, still super, super fun to play in Europe, play like one game a day. Uh, get to like analyze the game afterwards with your opponent. Also in Gibraltar, there's just like a ton of like super jams playing. So just to be able to play in like the same room as these people, um, I think that was yeah one of the first times I could do that, which was also just very very cool. Uh, it's just great when you just have this whole trip dedicated uh, to chess. Um, I definitely wish I could have done more traveling, especially with like uh, a team of people. Because I would see like the French team, they all come together, like five or six people. And then every night, you know, they're like analyzing their games together and uh, just having like tons and tons of fun. Um, but yeah, that was definitely one of my one of my best uh, chess experiences. That's when I felt like, yeah, this is really what it's kind of all about. Yeah. Okay, so um, now for my third, I want to say something about becoming a chess teacher after being, you know, a chess student and then a chess peer um, and then a chess teacher. Um, I mean, I guess it's a close call. I could say something about, you know, teaching like a big community like the dojo, but everyone here would already know that. So I'll so I'll go with a different one, um, which is, uh, you know, when I was first starting to teach a bunch like a lot of lessons to kids. Um, and, uh, you know, I went from, you know, teaching an occasional lesson to having a roster, you know, doing like 10, 15 lessons a week, um, you know, studying, preparing, following the kids, pairing them up to, to train together. And then, then I could fit in more kids cause I could do, you know, two or three kids per lesson. Um, and, uh, and there was a state scholastic championship that was in Monterey instead of normally it's somewhere in the Bay area. Um, you know, the way it works in general is somebody, you know, gets onto the board of a state scholastic federation and then gives themselves the contract for the tournament and then mm -hmm. makes a bunch of money. And, but anyway, in this, this one case, for some reason, it was held somewhere else, you know, the, uh, the little, Local impresarios had lost control of their gravy train or something like that. And so the tournament was held somewhere else. And it, the kids were so excited. We went all together and I went with them. And, um, you know, we set up like a little room where between each game, the kids could come and find me and we could like work together um, between rounds. And it's so much fun to, to work with chess students who have like goals or like, a like once it's like real, you know, once it's not just like, not to denigrate this, but it's not just like, Oh, I love chess. We're like studying these like beautiful games and like learning some like King and Pawn end games and stuff. But when it's like, there's that motivation, that direction that, you know, I'm trying to win this state championships on um, it you know, the buzz of being at the event, the kids are all just so like hyped up and amped up, you know, it's just like, everybody's got more energy and passion. And, um, so that was really, really fun and exciting. And, you know, having the kids just sort of like coming to me in that way where I, you know, flipped around to the other side of it 
already from being a student to then being a teacher and being able to give them guidance and start giving them recommendations for their, you know, studies and their life and all that. Um, that was a super fun trip and I didn't even play, but it was great fun to watch their games and talk to them and so forth. And I think that may also be where I met uh, Sam Shanklin because he was a, f- a friend of one of my students and he was playing like his first or second tournament. Um, but he was, you know, following his friend around cause they were good friends. So he was like coming to me too, and just, you know, had that passion and energy. Um, so yeah, basically most of my students then were between, let's say eight and 13 years old and they were so pumped up. It was great. Nice. All right. Round four. Um, I want to flash fast forward a little bit. And um, I should say, if you don't know anything about me after high school, I ended up, I ended up getting like this chess scholarship and then all this academic stuff happened and I got sucked into the academic world. I never stopped playing chess, but I was sucked into the academic world. And um, years later, I got the opportunity while I was doing my PhD in Germany to play in the Bundesliga. And I played for this team uh, called Fienheim. It's a little tiny village outside of Heidelberg where I was. And um, they had a team and we began in the second Bundesliga. And it was this glorious struggle to get into the first Bundesliga. And it was like, you know, I was really poor. And so first of all, it was an opportunity to travel around Germany and, uh, hang out with a group of people where, right, it was like, a, it really was a team. And, you know, we had to try to help each other do as best we could, because we didn't have a lot of money to pay heavy, heavy hitters to come in on our team to play. Anyways, just to kind of summarize it in one experience, we made it to the first Bundesliga and I got to play all of these great names. And in particular, what I really remember is I had the chance to play uh, Rafael Vaganian from Armenia. And it was so fascinating too, especially in thinking back on it now and that what's hard to convey now is the feeling of veneration and distance that one used to have toward the top players. Because even though this was already the time late nineties where engines were involved, there was still a feeling like these people are in connection to something divine that the rest of us do not have and that we're not simply worthy to even sit across the board from them. And that's definitely how I felt sitting across from Vaganian, whose games I had been studying since I was a kid, you know, who was previously, let's say in the top 10. And at that point, you know, was a slightly older dude. And the feeling of playing him, not only that, but like the sensation of, the ideas, you know, when you're playing, you play, analyze some game and you see some ideas, it's interesting. But when someone's coming at you and then you're having a little debate and they're trying to murder you with their ideas and you're trying to figure it out, it's it's a level. So I felt this guy coming at me and uh, right. Like when you play one of these top players, it's like, oh, I thank you for the experience of letting me feel what it's like to play somebody who's got some real depth. And uh, there were several experiences like that in the Bundesliga, but that's really stood out to me. I ended up holding that game and maybe I should have even won because the guy went into deep time pressure in order to squash me, the dirty little bug that I was. 
<laughs> but anyways, that was my uh, definitely playing in the Bundesliga. What an experience. Uh, also, uh, one, one thing I just want to leave with, it was, it was a, a venue or a series of venues where chess was, I feel like very deeply respected in a way that I never felt it was, at least in most American experiences that I had. All right, Costa, well, your turn. Okay, cool. Um, okay, actually, I need to start off with a quick correction, because in my last story, I said I never got a chance to like travel with like a team and stuff. But that's mm. not true. I remembered I did play for the Lindenwood University chess team for about a year. And we did travel to some tournaments together, including uh, a Pan Ams, which is like the collegiate, um, you know, big tournament at the end of the year. And that I have to say was very fun, like traveling as a team, like going on like a you know van together or bus together and staying at the same hotel, then like late night, like Blitz and Bug House. Um, and it kind of leads in actually to my, I guess, my fourth experience, maybe just a collective um all the times I've gotten to play Bug House after a tournament, you know, with like uh, fellow chess players. That's always been super, super fun and kind of a tradition, especially like, yeah, at the end of camps, but the end of tournaments. And I feel like it's also even something that uh, top players like to <laughs> like to partake in at the end of events. They're just like, yeah, time to time to let loose. Um, I think specifically my favorite one of these experiences was at uh the this tournament uh, called the U.S. Masters, which is a really strong open tournament that they run in uh, North Carolina every year. Um, and I forget which year this was. I think it was maybe 2016 or 2017. I'm not sure. Um, but one of the years they started having this like, uh, I guess it was kind of like uh, a Skittles room uh, that they normally have at tournaments where you can like analyze games and stuff. Um, but they they made it a little bit more fun. They provided snacks and they provided drinks and they also provided alcoholic drinks. And the whole thing was just taking place in this one um, like Hilton hotel where there's like the tournament and then everyone was staying at this hotel. And every night that room was just was just a party. Uh, you know, it was great because the rounds, they weren't super early. So you'd have tons of strong players coming in there, you know, GMs playing in the tournament, um, hanging out playing Blitz, Bug House. Uh, we played a ton of like hand and brain uh, most nights. It was great fun. Uh, I'm not going to say who, but some of the GMs, you know, they would drink quite a bit and, and their level would, you know, kind of oscillate up and down. <laughs> some games they would play really well and the next game they <laughs> kind of tank. Um, but but yeah, that whole time was just, uh, just a total, uh, total blast. I remember um, Grandmaster Gari was there. Shout out to uh, <laughs> Gari Shankar. Um, and yeah, I remember we, we made a great hand and brain team. Um, but yeah, but that I think is just like a tradition at many, many tournaments to just kind of play, play these fast games afterwards uh, and uh, relieve a lot of stress. But it was fun to also do it during the event as well. Can I ask you a question about that, Kostya? Mm -hmm. Would you rather miss out on all that evening fun and win the tournament or play a medium tournament where you don't gain or lose rating points and uh, be part of that every night? Well, you know, generally, generally I try to focus on the tournament. So yeah, when I play in a uh, place like Vegas, for example, I don't really do a lot of going out and I just try to, you know, live a, like a yeah healthy lifestyle, let's say. Um, but those experiences are great. So I definitely don't, because I'm sure I didn't do well that tournament, <laughs> but, 
but I definitely don't regret participating in that because I think it's just kind of uh, just valuable in other ways, you know. But generally, yeah, I try to not uh, not party it up too much during the event. Which is why the after tournament tradition is just so important for the, the players that yeah. <laughs> you have to fit it all in on the last night. Exactly. Um, all right. I think David might have might have to we'll need to give him a sec here. Um, so I can go and then David. Uh, one could, more. Yeah. David, David can go, can do, go, go twice. Oh, Wait, sorry. 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 I'll no, go ahead. Go yeah, yeah, I'll go. I'll try and get mine in here. Um, okay. So, um, so uh, you know, ultimately, although it's like amazing to be a student and a teacher and, and there's all these ancillary events to chess that are amazing, but like the greatest experience in chess perhaps ultimately is just playing the actual game, right? That's why, you know, that's why we have the whole thing. That's why we meet. That's why we travel. That's why we meet, you know, talk to other people and teach other people and all that. So, um, one of my greatest early experiences because because of the way i was trained and taught from robert it was like it had that veneration piece that jesse talked about and the veneration extended to like masters with a capital m it wasn't like ims or fms or nms or whatever's because you know i'd studied chess with you know with like morphy and richard retty and you know nimzovich and stuff and they weren't like oh this guy was an fm but this guy was like an im or something like that right it was just like they were masters um and so like i had a huge veneration for the idea of like masters and so for me it was a big deal to you know when i beat my first master i remember it um but there was a tournament where i really felt like i had arrived much more which was maybe Maybe one of the, I, one, I don't know if it was the first term I won, but it must have been the first term I won that had a grandmaster in it. Um, and, uh, and like a few IMs and I was maybe a, maybe like, maybe I'd been a national master for a few months or a few months or so. It was like pretty new to it, but, um, but there I was. And then I was like winning games and competing for first place in the tournament. So not only did I win the tournament, but um, there was this round that I was playing where I played a King's Gambit where you sacked the knight on F3. And then um, and then I sacked a pawn. And then I sacked a rook. And um, on the board next to me, there was an IM against a GM playing. And I think they were on board two and I was on board one. But they were watching the game with these like skeptical eyebrows, you know, and like shaking their heads. Like, And at some point I was down like so much material was getting towards the end of the game and uh and they were just they were openly laughing they yeah. were openly laughing as i was playing and then i played a queen sacrifice that they hadn't seen coming you know they're they're sitting next so i mean they're obviously concentrated on their own game right but they're laughing at me for not just for like losing but like for losing so badly like you don't belong like you don't belong here. You're not one of us. Like what's this kid doing on this first board playing like, uh -huh. a, you know, like a six-year-old from 1830 What's going on. And then I sacked my queen and like, the, like their eyes just like bugged out. They almost fell out of their chairs. Like, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and it was like one of the, you know, the greatest games that, that I, that I've played. I mean, it was certainly the greatest game I'd played to that point. Um, and, uh, yeah. Then I won the game. I won the tournament and, uh, I really felt like, 
wow, <laughs> I, my, my, my chess, you know, is something, it's not the same as everybody else's chess, you know, like, you know, there are things that I do or don't see that other people do or don't see. Um, but that like, you know, my chess had a place, it was surprising, it was different, but, um, but that it could be great too. Cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, I guess there's a fifth and final round, loads of other things we could have put on the list, I'm sure. So, uh, fast forward again, and this is about 2001. I was teaching rich kids at this college in my hometown of Santa Fe. And, uh, there was the opportunity to go, uh, qualify for the U.S. championship. Now, before it should be said, the U.S. championship was always this very closed affair where it was the same names over and over and they played for like $3. <laughs> That's what they played for back in the day, like $3. It was like the only tournament that Sarah One would come back to from Europe for was the U.S. championship. Any case, so it was like this first year and it was going to be in Seattle and it was possible for normal chumps to like try to qualify and qualifying that year was, I remember I went, had to go to LA with some, you know, LAX airport, you know, mm, hotel, yeah. you know, and you had to win that thing. And then you could qualify to go play in the tournament. And that was definitely a really big, beautiful, interesting moment. Cause it was like, you had to go through the pit of hell to get to somewhere beautiful. And it was very formative because chess in the United States is never, it was never like that interesting, never a fun or beautiful experience. But then what that did was it opened this, I don't know, avenue of beauty or whatever you want to call it. So then that happened. And then every year for years afterwards, that's what I was on about. Right. So we did it twice in Seattle, twice in San Diego, once in Oklahoma, and then I did it once in uh, St. Louis. And St. Louis ultimately ends up taking over the U.S. championship. But through that period of years, and it was all about that first experience of qualifying at some yeah, dirty hotel in LA to get to go play Sarah Juan and the rest of them in Seattle. Um, so in some ways, a story of struggle, but also like finding then in my own country, having come back from Europe, like the ability for beautiful chess in uh, America. And to this day, it's kind of like, if I'm on a play, that's kind of what I'm searching for. So like, even just the idea, for example, of the U.S. senior now for me is like, oh, I need to qualify for that thing so I can go play a beautiful tournament, whether it's the uh, U.S. senior or maybe going playing some senior Olympia, just the uh, ability to play chess in some venerated circumstance, right, where it's quiet and I can drink my coffee and just enjoy the game. And maybe have a cool after party too. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds sounds cool. I, I'm very familiar with those LAX opens. I grew up on them. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But with I guess I did have a hope of qualifying once for the um Southern California State Championship or a couple of times. And that was that was a nicely, nicely run event. So yeah, there was some was some light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> right. Um 
Okay, so my last one um, was uh, actually me getting my final I am norm, which uh, I believe was in 2016, also in St. Louis at a I am norm uh, round robin event. And uh, this one is very special for me, um, number one, because I had been chasing this last norm for quite a while, like at least a year, and I'd went to Europe and, and not gotten it. Um, and uh, yeah, I felt like I was I was very, very close, but just needed one more good tournament. Um, so I ended up actually getting very lucky to get the norm. I had to win something like three and a half out of my last four, and then especially the last game that I had to win. I had no business winning yet, but my opponent just like, over pushed and 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 then I yeah ended up just getting super super lucky to win, um, so getting that final norm was great, um, but that night also coincided with my twenty uh, fourth birthday, so mm-hmm. that was that was super fun as well, um, and so there was an IM norm section a GM norm section there was a, a bunch of chess players there, uh, I think you know I've probably told the story before um uh, lafong was there lafong hua he also got an im norm in the same event so we were both just very very happy celebrating uh together and we both won our last round games from just like really bad unbelievably bad positions you know like just no chance of winning whatsoever so we both felt like we had uh swindled our way our way in um and uh and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it kind of ties into these after party or after tournament party experiences, but that was definitely great. Uh, I think Sarawan was in town and he was there hanging out. You know, he's he's incredible uh, to spend time with. And uh, yeah, yeah, just super, super fun uh, overall. Okay, nice. Sorry for losing the thread. I'll have to uh, go back and listen to Jesse's fifth round. <laughs> But um, is this the last share? The last share, final yeah. one. All right. Final one. I've still got another. I'm, I'm up to like 30 or 40 now instead of 20 <laughs> like at the start of the show. Um, but here's what I'll give you guys. Um, again, it's going to be a playing experience. Um, it's the first game that I ever won in an end game against a GM. And I don't mean like the first time I ever um, won a game in an, like that like reached an end game, but I mean a game where I won during the end game. So like we got to the end game and I wasn't necessarily winning. And then, and then I, I won in the end game. And for those who don't know anything about me, like one of my formative end games was, you know, I lost a rook and pawn end game where I had an extra a B and C pawns, just three connected past pawns. Um, when I was already a master, I lost that to an IM like, <laughs> devastated him in the opening and middle game, presumably, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't have the game score anymore. I was up three connected past pawns and, uh, you know, on the King side, we had something like three against three and I lost that end game. So, you know, for me to win an end game was a long, long road. <laughs> it was a long time before I won any end games, even that were mm-hmm. completely winning. You know, I would struggle to win an end game with two extra pawns with an extra night, whatever, you know, um, but uh, but finally, I did win a game um, off of endgame skills, like for the first time in my life. And what happened was uh, this, again, has some peer training because prior to this tournament, I spent <coughs> over a month, maybe even two months uh, training with Alan Stein 
and uh, we spent like a month on the King and Pawn chapter of Dvoretsky and then a month on the Rook and Pawn endgame of Dvoretsky. And we, you know, played through every single variation. And the thing about that book and why I always say it's so hard is like you play to the end of a variation. And I mean, unless you're all, unless you're already some kind of end game God, you get to the end of the variation. You don't even know why the variation ends there. You know, like if it's some like rook and pawn ending, he shows like some key maneuver, you know, and then now you're supposed to win. But like in the final positions, like we have no idea how to win, you know, and we would have to spar like the final, like the final position that's supposed to be the like, oh yeah, okay. Like we would have to spar those again and again because we just couldn't figure it out. Um, So we worked through that. I mean, we solved every single puzzle. We went down every single variation and then we went down every side branch that we thought of in every single variation. And we were putting in long, long hours with occasional tennis breaks in the sun. So this was, this was some heavy, heavy sweat. Um, and just a fantastic experience on its own, even if it didn't lead to anything else. Right. I mean, it was just terrific fun to do it. Um, Jesse joined us at, at some point mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. for a bit, you know, I remember, I remember something like, uh, where we were doing like weird strength exercises on the beach. You remember that Jesse, like hanging yeah, out yeah. to like, like rings as long as we could or like uh-huh. running and then doing pushups into the sun and stuff. <laughs> so, um, uh, but at the end of that period of study, I went to a tournament, the Foxwood open. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I had the Sanford fellowship at the time and I went, to register for the tournament and the tournament organizer who was also executive director of the USCF at the time or something like that. Well, maybe not executive director, but like president. Right. Um, I, I went to register and he asked me like, what section? And I was like, what section? <laughs> I think I'm the Sanford fellow. You're like the president of the USCF or whatever. Like, shouldn't you know, like something about what's going on in the USCF? <laughs> You know, so anyway, I'm like open section, right? And then I'm like reading the pre-reg list when Yuri Shulman walks in and asks to register, and they ask him what section. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, that dude is the U.S. champion right now. <laughs> he was literally <laughs> the, the champion of the country, <laughs> and the guy running Foxwoods and the USCF doesn't know what section he needs to play in. But anyway, the reason I mentioned that is because this game was actually played between me and Yuri Shulman. <laughs> so later on in that tournament, these two unknown chess players, myself and Yuri Shulman, who happened to be playing up in the master section for some reason, we play this like 80 move end game, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's. Uh, I mean, for those of you who who know your chess opening theory, it's a lot. It's like a, a complicated theoretical line from the Marshall uh, gambit in the semi-slav where black can take it straight to an end game, but they still have slightly weak dark squares. And I was like locked in on my claim of a supposed small positional advantage, you know? Mm-hmm. So like the whole game, I was like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. <laughs> you know, um, uh-huh. I played like a C4, C5 pawn sack to give him doubled isolated C pawns when he wanted to free his light squared bishop. So he's got uh-huh. C6, C5. And I'm like, oh, that's it for him. You know, like we'll just like double up, control C5, E5, slowly grind him. And uh, and Shulman just played rook D5 to cover those squares, even though I had a light squared bishop, right? 
He just says, yeah, you don't get C5 and E5. He just plays rook D5. So then I have to trade my bishop for his rook and he gets to reconnect all his pawns, right? And he's got, you know, bishop and 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 one pawn against rook. But like his position is just amazing. Um, You know, like close to full compensation, but maybe I'm still like a tiny bit better and I'm clutching on to the belief that I'm better and I deserve to eventually win this game. And uh, we just like fight forever and, it goes like 80 moves and I had one pawn left on the board uh, and came up with some like really awesome Zugzwang, uh where I couldn't make progress, but he couldn't make progress. And I found a way to, to Zugzwang him anyway. It was, it, I mean, like he fought like, like hell that game, you know, like he didn't, he didn't give me anything. And uh, the Dvoretsky paid off. So. You won the game. I won the game. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, in like 80, <laughs> 90 moves, something like that. Nice. Um, study your Duretsky, everybody. Uh, one, I mean, once once you're good enough to do so and you've got somebody to help you fight through it. Yeah, 2200 and up, please. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All righty, guys. Uh, I think that was good. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll cut it there.